Welcome to Conscious Collaboration, the premier show for authentic discussions with growth-oriented leaders. Welcome and good morning. Hi, everyone. I am really pleased to be on our Conscious Collaboration podcast once again. My name is Yael Sivi, and I'm really happy to have a conversation today with Rachel Peters, who is the New York City Executive Director for the Peer Health Exchange. Hi, Rachel. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So I've asked Rachel to join us for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, Peer Health Exchange does wonderful work. And maybe Rachel, as, as you say a few words about yourself, you can tell us about Peer Health Exchange, but I'm just very moved by your mission and what your organization is about. But second, I have actually had the uh, privilege of having several of Rachel's direct reports, people who have reported to her as a manager in a leadership class I teach called Emerging Leaders. And I have just been sort of continually impressed by how engaged and happy and cool and wonderful these people are. <laughs> and I've thought, who are these people reporting to and who is running this organization that something is going right? So Rachel, I wanted to say thank you for joining me for this conversation. Thank you. Yes. And I take full credit for all of their awesomeness. and <laughs> As you should. Um, <laughs> do you want to just tell us a little bit about Pure Health Exchange and what you do there just to sort of ground us in this conversation? Yes, I would love to. So Pure Health Exchange, we started here in New York City 15 years ago. We're a no national nonprofit, but we were founded in New York. And we train college students to teach health education in public schools. Here in New York, we're in about 50 high schools, reaching over 6,000 young people who wouldn't otherwise be having conversations around mental health, sexual health, and substance use in safe, or what we strive to be safe and inclusive spaces. And it's turned out to be a theme across the country that health and sort of centering young people and their decision-making and their goals for their lives has disappeared from public schools in spaces where it used to be really present. All right. So what's cool about, I think, your mission and what you do is, I think, the spirit of what you do on the outside world and serving your clients and these students, in a way, is the very spirit of what we're going to talk about on the inside of your organization, which is kind of my focus as a consultant and a coach, how workplaces can be healthy spaces and safe spaces as well. So I want to start, and this is the way I've started all these conversations with you, Rachel, by talking through our working definition of what we're calling conscious collaboration. And it's still probably a definition we're going to refine over time. But if you will play with me for a second with this idea that conscious collaboration to us is an attitude and a set of practices in working with and or leading others that recognizes that much of what we do at work, in particular the interactions we have with others, can be an opportunity both for our professional growth as well as our psychological growth as human beings. And each day in a way, each interaction gives us a chance to help the workplace be a more emotionally healthy place to be. So this is what we're putting out in the world. And I'm curious, does this working definition make sense to you? What reactions or thoughts or feelings do you have as you, as you sort of try that on? <laughs> I do sort of think about different parts of it as I read this before and as I've thought about it, but it really does resonate with me. I think it's pretty aligned with the way I think about my own team and myself in the workforce. 
the first thing I sort of thought about when reading this was my understanding of it for myself, which was from my own place in the world as a white woman of privilege uh, when I was job seeking in my late 20s after graduate school. Um, and sort of realizing people kept asking as they do at those inflection points, what are you doing next? And then I had to bring my desires at that point, which were to have children and into that conversation that I was looking for a job, but I was also looking to be a mother and like wanted to be merging those in the way that I was looking for the next steps in my life. So when I was asked what I wanted to sort of do in air quotes, when I graduated, I shared that desire and I felt this relief of this like integration of self that I wasn't trying to do only like a professional thing next. And so I wanted to work in preventative health with young people. And I wanted to be a mom. And then at Pure Health Exchange, I've learned so much from my team about bringing our whole selves into the work. And I've seen that and especially had these conversations with my colleagues of color um, and colleagues who hold marginalized and multiple marginalized identities, that bringing oneself and one's whole self to work can be a real privilege and that we have to be working constantly in spaces like ours to ensure that it's not a privilege, that it's um, an equitable space where people can show up with all of themselves. And that when we do that, when we create those spaces, the work is better. Not only is um, are we creating a more healthy, to your point, emotionally healthy place to be, but I think our our team works better and then we work better. We're more creative and we're more honest with each other. We're more willing to take risks. So I've been thinking about the sort of interplay a lot in this around how it resonates with me and then how I've seen it resonate on my team. Yeah. I love also that you're bringing in this lens of privilege and how that might play into it because it's not a piece of the puzzle I've sort of consciously connected until we started talking it through more. And yet maybe historically, it has been a privilege to be your whole self at work. Is that part of what you're saying? Absolutely. I think we often ask people of color to show up in a way that's not allowing them to bring their experiences of racism and marginalization with them on their way in the door into work. And I think that's also true of colleagues who are with diverse gender identities and in many different ways where we sort of want them to show up in certain ways uh, and negate other parts of their identities. I remember in our team, right after the Pulse nightclub shooting, how we had members of our team who really needed space differently after that massacre to heal. And some people were nascent in their employment with us. And I think we really built trust as a community during that time where people were able to say, I really want to come into work, but I need to not talk to anybody and process what's happening and work, but in my own room. And so we don't have individual offices, but we found a shared conference room that that, that person could have. And you know, other people needed different things during that time. But I think like that opportunity to ask for what one needed to bring to bring their whole self during this moment of trauma in their community to work was really helpful for us for relationship building and showing trust and, and being able to show up and say, these are the things I need. That sort of thing doesn't always happen, I think, in the workplace where you're able to bring all of these facets of oneself and be aware of what's happening in, in the outer world and how that might impact you in your day. So the pulse shooting obviously is kind of, you know, just a tragic and painful and extreme example of what we can sort of go through and how we try to show up at work in some way. And it sounds like you created the conditions 
for safety after that. I'm wondering in in even more of a day-to-day basis, Rachel, and I know I've been even had the chance to be a part of one of your team retreats. I feel like you guys are always sort of having an ongoing conversation about identity and about mm-hmm. self. But can you just talk to us about like some of the conversations that you tend to facilitate or, you know, create the conditions for and 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 how that again, has has maybe contributed to this sense of of people being able to bring their whole selves to work? Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head for an outdated expression by talking about how our work externally impacts the need for our work internally as a team. It's a real privilege of ours, I think, that we spend so much time thinking about how we're going to create both the conditions and the classroom environment for the young people we serve who are ninth graders, and then how we're going to train the you know over 500 college students that we work with to be able to deliver that curriculum to the ninth graders. So those are two specific spaces that we're working on as part of our quote unquote work. And so then we can take a lot of those learnings and best practices into our own team. And it's a lot easier in many respects with our own team because we're full time and we're here all the time and work together uh, in a way that's very different than it is you know, we're able to create the culture here versus when we're entering a classroom or entering a college where we don't have as much control. And so that allows us, I think, to do a lot of day-to-day thinking about the work (laughs) of creating good spaces, right? And so it doesn't mean we're perfect at it. I think it really comes from initially a place of understanding that we were not doing a great job at some of these things as an organization, as an organization founded um, by white women coming out of a very prestigious, you know, an Ivy League institution we were founded at Yale. And so like what it meant for the work that we had done to switch to being a work work that was centering on racial justice and, and equity. So then little things come out of that, right? What I love about these kind of conversations is like we could spend the entire time talking at a very heady level about the theory of like where some of our practices come from, which are like trauma informed and equity centered. But then when you get to the practice part of it, it's often really simple. Like we in our check-ins, we always in the beginning of our team check-in, we always start with everybody doing a go around of roses and thorns. Mm. Can you tell us what that is just in case people don't I know? I sure can. Yeah. <laughs> so that is you know, everybody, if, if they are, if they want to sharing something that is thorny for them in that moment. So something that's been going wrong or making them feel sort of set, anything that's a sort of negative, right? Or Delta. And then Rose is anything positive or exciting or happy that you want to share with the team. And then of course there's fun variations like Rose Parade and you only have good things to share or Rosebud, an emerging exciting thing. But I think that this grounds us in the in the understanding at the beginning of a team meeting, even during our busiest times of year, that we're also here for each other and to be there and connect with each other about what's going on for you. And that can be personally or or professionally, it's often personal. And so that can be as little as like the frustrations you brought into the room from the MTA that morning or something much bigger in your life. And I think that sort of in, like the integration of asking people to to share about their personal themselves personally in a group setting in a way that's very structured is coming out of trauma informed and equity centered work right because it is that we're it's it's not out of nowhere we're not springing it on you you can expect that this will happen people know the bounds of it and what they are um, being asked of and they know that this is a like a really welcoming and inviting space right so that's like 
a minute example, but I found really helpful, especially with a team where we might not see each other every day and you don't have the opportunity that always ask, like what's salient for you, which is a different question, Rosenthorn, isn't it? Then how are you? Very much. I mean, I also want to just say for a plug for parents who are listening, it's a great thing to do at the dinner table with your kids too. And yeah, I will share that it is an example of um, conscious collaboration for me in that way that I learned about Rosenthorn at work and we were implementing at work. And I had a one-year-old at the time, so we weren't in a speaking place, but we, I have integrated this into my Sunday night dinners with my family. So we do Rosenthorns around the table on Sunday nights and which is the, the time we usually only at this point in our lives that we get to have dinner all together. But, um, you know, in, in an idea of the per, my professional growth really impacting my personal life, I think that's actually a really specific example of something that we've done. Yes, great. There's much more to say about that. I'm going to maybe just turn us slightly to a different direction, but thanks for giving us an example. Another conversation we had in the past, Rachel, that really also prompted me to think this would be fun for us to talk about was when you brought up that in your team, you practice loving accountability. And I had just never heard a leader talk like this. And not only was I very excited by this term, I wanted to understand more. What is loving accountability in the workplace? And I wonder if you could tell us, what is loving accountability when you talk about it? How did this evolve? How is it practiced? Just give us that sense if you could. So I think this really came about from conversations I was having with the executive director of Sadie Nash Leadership Project, where I'm on the board, Chitra IR, and was talking about management practices and building her management, how she wanted her workforce, like her team rather, to be a feminist workplace and what that looked like in terms of management. And so we were just talking a lot about how she was going to have structures in place that supported her team and were clear on outcomes. Um, but that really felt to her like the feminist workplace she was designing. And I think it was through those conversations that we struck on this term of loving accountability, which is that to me is that asking people to be accountable and being explicit about what it is we need from them is an act of love and that it is something you can do in a loving way. And so actually by not doing that and not holding, not being explicit about our needs and reciprocally not then telling people when they haven't been meeting our needs is is sort of not showing up with the love for them with for their own personal growth and also for them to do the job that they're they have been hired for um and i think with that lens of thinking about it as a positive of where often people have felt like being held accountable it can have a negative connotation of negative consequences but sort of flipping it has been really powerful for us and is also aligned with the work we do around sexual health, right? Like if I'm um, talking to young people about how to communicate boundaries, it's really this, and or how to ask for consent. It's really the same sort of practice of like, here's what I expect from you in this relationship and how I want you to show up. And I'm going to tell you and hold you accountable to doing those things. And I want you to do the same thing for me. Mm. And so I think that comes across from in, in my team as like having really clear goals and high expectations, but really approaching those with like support and love for the person who, who is on my team. So that means checking in about 
where they are in that process and how, how their work is going, um, but also knowing what else is happening in their lives and being able to like meet at that intersection, but still have goals that have to be met and conversations around what those look like and, and high expectations. I'm not sure if I'm getting clearer as I keep talking, so I'll stop. <laughs> no, I think, I know you're making me think about a lot of things. I was coaching a leader yesterday and we realized that every conundrum he was having had to do with balancing in a way two polarities or like a paradox, mm-hmm. whether it had to do with moving fast because this organization is, is undergoing a big change process, but thoughtfully and slowly enough so that they don't make big mistakes right? mm-hmm. and that they don't leave like bodies on the side of the road mm-hmm. because they're just moving too fast. What I'm hearing from you too feels like this paradox. What does it mean to have high standards a value around excellence, holding people accountable to those things and love them at the same time. I don't feel that those are polarities. I think it is loving them to see in them the ability and the to hold themselves accountable to the high expectations. I think that not okay. loving them is letting them slide on what they're capable of. And and the, I mean, I'm not setting their goals, their goals they set or being... I'm not sure it's a pair their polarities. I think that you don't show love without boundaries, right? I think back to thinking about children or back to thinking about other parts of our lives, like being clear about and having high expectations for people, I think is really believing in them and showing love that is greater than I will let you slide on this because I love you. Yeah. And, and frankly, when I said paradox, I mean, I think the truth lies in paradox. So I think what we're pointing to is a truth, but to love someone right means that you want the best for them and you hold them (laughs) you know um to the boundaries that you that you um talked about so so please know that i don't necessarily think of these things as opposites but i think historically leaders sometimes can posit these things as i have to do one thing or the other exactly right and so i just love that you're saying no they're actually they're really two sides of the very same coin Yes, I think that's, that is right. And that's exactly where this came from in the conversations with Chitra around that was getting to that place. Yeah. And I love the idea that um, you, you're thinking about and trying to practice what it means to be in a feminist workplace too, because we talked about that a little uh, last time. I feel like that's just a whole other and maybe even separate conversation. What, yes, what you should have Chitra on to do that. <laughs> workplace, okay, okay, to be continued. <laughs> I'm wondering, Rachel, as we think about just what this means to you, and I know you've been quite, you know, reflective even just throughout, any examples of how you feel like you've grown as a person as you've become a leader? And it could be before you were actually sort of in this title, or maybe since you've been in this title, but a sense of how you've grown as a person sort of psychologically or emotionally as you've grown professionally? I was thinking about this Yesterday, I have a newer team member and we were talking about our management relationship and she was sharing how it's the work she's been doing at Pure Health Exchange has already impacted her communication at home. Um, Mm -hmm. And we were sort of joking how it's so nice to enter an organization where we have clear boundaries or or not boundaries, but clear expectations around feedback (laughs) and the way that we give, we give feedback at the beginning of every management meeting, um, both to each other, right? So like I expect feedback from the people that I'm managing as much as um, I'm giving feedback so that we can grow together and that we do that across function in, in, in our team. And 
But the boundaries of that are so clear. Like we do it at the beginning. We always do it. So it's not a surprise. I'm not threatened by it. And it is clearly couched as an opportunity for me to learn and grow as a person and how it would be actually so much cleaner if we could implement that sort of structure within our families too, because we often at home don't have those opportunities. And so in many ways, I've found so many clear ways that I've grown at work through this role and before. I remember at a team retreat a few years ago where I had just had my second son and I was always emotional about leaving and going back to work and um, with my children. I was sitting at this team retreat and was just overwhelmed by the idea that I was actually a better parent because I got to be surrounded by these incredible people that I worked with, that the conversations we were having were, were helping me learn about the intersectionality of like, race and gender and sexuality that I was like on top of current conversations around Black Lives Matter and thinking about how that was going to impact the way I parented and the way I talked and showed up in my own community, just being influenced by the conversations I was privy to and the way we were thinking about the work at home. Then showing up in my own community with that information allowed me to come back and be even a better leader at Peer Health Exchange because I was practicing more, more consistently and having conversations around race, particularly at that time. And so I've just seen that, that play so often where I, I learned so much here and then I'm able to implement it at home and then able to come back stronger here. And I, I appreciate that sort of ebb and flow, <laughs> I guess. I was yeah, thinking in, in particular about like, I've had some of my own mental health issues while in this job around with anxiety and how I was keeping that to myself for a little bit. And then I started sharing it very explicitly with my team and how that was a very personal thing that I was bringing to my work but work that does deal in mental health issues and how showing up and sharing that vulnerability had sort of brought my interactions with my team and our ability to interact together to another level, sort of like being that vulnerable with my team opened up them the opportunity to share with me their vulnerabilities as well. And I think like our, our learning together then on how we support young people in talking about mental health has only amplified through our own honest reflections and share outs about ourselves. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that with us. I, I'm so excited that more and more people are willing to, in a way, go public mm -hmm. and be transparent about, you know, our human struggles, because we all have something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, like, for instance, I was thinking, I was reading about Kristen Bell, mm -hmm. the actress. Have you heard? I mean, because she talks a lot about her anxiety. Yeah publicly. And I think that just is such a powerful sort of gesture of giving permission to other people. Like you said, it's, isn't it this interesting thing that vulnerability begets vulnerability by mm -hmm. you being vulnerable, you open the door to say to people, it's okay, you can do this too. And my sense is it makes them even more engaged and connected to the workplace and to you. Is that your sense as well? I do think so. I think, <laughs> I do think so. I think it's, it's always funny to watch and to experience people who become, who join Peer Health Exchange. And I, I appreciate your saying connected to me. I do think it is a larger cultural phenomenon here at Peer Health Exchange. And I credit our broader team with so much of that mm -hmm. culture, including our CEO, Louise. But I think that it's funny to watch people join who have never worked before because we have a lot of really young people who come here straight out of college or they've worked before, but not full time. And then people who have worked in really toxic environments 
join yes. our team. And it's fun me to watch. Both of those are new learning experiences. If you, I mean, we've also had people who've joined us from wonderful environments before, <laughs> who've worked before and then come here, of course. But part of it is really unsettling at first, actually, to, to work in a place where people are sharing their vulnerabilities and being honest about their capacity and, and not necessarily jockeying for position. Uh, and like a lot of the stuff that one can see and expect in other workplaces when it doesn't happen can be also sort of put you off, but be intriguing. I don't know if it puts you off. It's sort of like, it's confusing, maybe. <laughs> How much can I trust you with myself? I think it yes. is, is sort of this piece that comes up. And I think, you know, even we had a team retreat recently where somebody shared afterwards that she felt like she had shared more at that retreat, even after being there with us for two years than she'd ever had before. She just was still gaining that trust in the workplace and bringing herself. And I think what, you know, being able to keep building on that trust does really connect you to the organization and and to the work because it's a really good feeling to feel loved at work and you know respected for your work but also safe not like oh job security but safe like people see me here mm -hmm. and and i think that it can be scary for people to look for other jobs knowing what that feeling is and 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 how do you find that somewhere else and ensure that you're going to maybe not ensure, but really look for a place where you can feel good when you show up at work. And I do think, yeah, that is a big part of why people stay here. Yeah. And thank you for bringing up, because I, I think sometimes I have just a really strong, but very implicit assumption that everybody just wants to sit around and talk about like their feelings all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to remember that that's not everyone's jam and it, it shouldn't be forced either. So what I'm hearing you say is, it's one thing for you to share, but you, you're not forcing others to share. You're just sort of opening the invitation if people want to share of themselves, that's that's available to them. And for some people that might take a few years, right? That, that sort of comfort. And I just want to sort of remind our listeners sort of sometimes the pushback I'll get from clients is, but we're not here to just talk about our feelings yet. Oh, we got to get the work done. My experience is actually more work can get done when people feel like they can bring bring their whole selves to work because a lot of energy is released in not having to kind of wear a mask or manage all that stuff in the background. I'm wondering if, if that's your sense as well, Rachel, or any sort of reactions to that idea. But aren't we here to get the work done kind of thing? I just was talking about this with my husband who said something similar about like, it's so hard because by the time you want to sort of like do that other stuff, you know, it's almost the end of the day and you've got to race out the door. And I was like, I actually think this is the work you have to be doing this work throughout the day, that it is part of the work that has to be gotten done. So I agree with you, but but I don't always think it it needs all of it, this separate time or separate energy. It, it often needs to be happening in, in concert and it, they do then come out together, right? Like I'm not just sitting and talking about my, not necessarily just sitting and talking about my stress at home, but I'm talking about my stress and my stress as it relates to my work. And like, then we can have practical solutions that come up from that. Or I have a team member who always shares at the beginning of our check-in how they're doing on a scale of zero to 10 in terms of stress, for example. Mm -hmm. That's part of the work to, for me to understand, not just for him to be able to let that go and, and to share that with me. And so I can sort of know how he's doing. And so 
and we've had conversations in the past when we were setting up our management relationship to know what he's going to act like when he's stressed and what he'll need from me. So I'm keyed in then from that number, but also then I can be a better manager because I can ask what's on his plate. I can better understand what's happening if he's overly stressed. And so I think the work, it doesn't at all feel separate in those moments to know how he is quote unquote feeling because yes. it is so related to then not to be like a cold hearted, <laughs> um, cold hearted, uh, yes, ESTJ that I am, but literally to understand then he's going to perform better if his needs are met. I'm just realizing you spoke in our sort of short. I did. I'm sorry. I, that's why no, I paused no, no. before I did it. Cause I knew I was going to use my Myers-Briggs shorthand. Not everyone will know this language, but many of you will. We're using Myers-Briggs language here. That may be a separate conversation, Rachel, we have to have about <laughs> Myers-Briggs in the workplace because that's like a whole other thing. Maybe last question for you, Rachel. You and I share something in common. We both have MSWs. Mm-hmm. I don't get to meet so many leaders who are also social workers, and I am very interested, sort of similar to the, what does it mean to be in a feminist workplace? What does it mean to be a social worker and to be a leader? Wondering as we finish up, if if you could just reflect on any, any thoughts you have on how these two things inform each other or what you've learned along the way, sort of having, having that background. So I got a dual degree. I got a degree in public health and social work, and I did it at the same time. And I immediately went into a management role. It was a sort of a funky management role, I think, that was perfectly designed for an MSW, where I, my team were all um, clients at the clinics we served and in a, a program to engage women of color who are HIV positive in their medical care. Um, so they were clients, but not. But to me, they were staff members. And so, but I really quickly started just really relying on the skills that I had learned from my MPH to do my job. And I started sort of saying, oh, why did I get an MSW? Was that sort of not a good use of my time? And I remember saying that to somebody, to my, I think it was to my husband who was like, no, no, you are so different from that experience, the way you listen, the way you reflect, the way you talk. And, you know, I had been thinking about the tools I had learned from my MPH program you know, how to do a project plan, how, et cetera. And I hadn't been thinking about me, which as the tool, which is so much of the work in social work is to refine yourself as the tool. And that was really a helpful reminder and reframe for me in the rest of my work where I started to really just love management and managing because it is my opportunity to practice my social work skills and and really think about not in a, you know, in a boundaried way, but of the people on my team and how they can grow and reach the goals they want that they've set out for themselves and how I can support them in that and really seeing that aligned with the work and how I have been trained as a social worker. And so I found after sort of (laughs) having to step back and reassess that I I use my social work degree and the skills I learn there every day in all of the the relationships um, that I build and the way I think about my relationships at home and at work. I think it's really fun because of that. (laughs) I think I find management really fun because of the opportunity to sort of think about and use a lot of that practice, if that makes sense. Totally. And I just love this parallel, right? You're helping your clients grow and mature and you're helping, you know, your colleagues grow and mature and we're growing and maturing as we're doing all that. It's like, is it, you know, fair to say these are some core values that get to be lived out every day? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Rachel, I, there's so many 
angles we could continue talking about this workplace and leadership. So I just want to say I'm going to stop us just for the sake of time, but I am so grateful to you for having this conversation with me today. And I am so grateful to you. I, I have had four and people get have the opportunity of going through your program and all of us are constantly in awe of the work that you do um, in that program and the work you've done with our team. So thank you. Thanks so much. So to all listeners, if you're interested in hearing or learning more about Pure Health Exchange, feel free to check them out. They're just a wonderful organization. And again, thanks, Rachel, for your time today. Thank you. 